Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ezra, chapter 5. Remember that Ezra comes right after the book of 2 Chronicles in your Old Testament. The last couple weeks, thank you to Greg and Scott for preaching from the book of Matthew. The plan is that later this fall, we will return uh, to Matthew for our weekly uh, preaching. For the time being, we're going to be walking through the second half of Ezra, and we'll be moving a little more quickly through the second half of the book than we did through the first half of the book. Like today, I have a pretty large passage. I'm, I'm going to actually not read it before my sermon. I'm going to read it as I go just because the passage is larger than normal. And so we're going to be working through Ezra 5.1 all the way through 6.12. And I'll go ahead and give you a, a basic outline for the message just to give you a sense of direction of where we're going. The uh, sermon is titled Obedience and Opposition. These are obviously themes that run commonly throughout the first few chapters of Ezra, uh, obedience and opposition. And here are the three points. Number one, obedience often leads to opposition, both without and within. Obedience often leads to opposition without and within. Number two, uh, given the context of the story, in government opposition, honor God, speak truthfully, and appeal to just laws. In government opposition, honor God, speak truthfully, and appeal to just laws. Number three, watch God turn your enemies into servants of your good. Watch God turn your enemies into servants of your good. And these, will, these points go in the order of the passage. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we will we'll dive in. Let's pray together again. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would... Bring us back in our memories to this time, 520 BC, there in the second year of the reign, Darius, king of Persia, as 50,000 of Israel have returned home to Jerusalem and are struggling to begin the rebuilding project of the temple and later of the city and its walls through Nehemiah. God, show us much that there is here for us to learn today. Help us to rightly understand this text in its context and then to apply it appropriately to ourselves in the New Covenant era. I pray that you would encourage us, embolden us, strengthen us, make us people of integrity and truth, and help us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, as Jesus said, and help us, God, now to be honoring you and focused on your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my first point, uh, which really covers essentially the first 10 verses of chapter 5, is this idea of obedience that often leads to opposition both without and within. Um, Just as a real quick reminder, I know we haven't been in Ezra for a few weeks, just as a quick reminder, the people have come back from Babylon, and you remember they started to rebuild the altar of the temple, and then they were put on pause for 16 years, and that was really out of cowardice and fear. They were intimidated by the local Persian authorities. And finally, you're going to see here as a reminder, God sent two prophets, and we spent three weeks in Haggai looking at his message, Haggai and Zechariah, who prophesied, they spoke God's word from heaven, it convicted the people, and it brought a spirit of encouragement and renewal. So again, this first point, obedience often leads to opposition, both without and within, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah... The son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them. 
supporting them. If you remember, if you were here, we spent three weeks in Haggai, a month or so ago. And if you remember Haggai, and just as a footnote, if you've ever read Haggai and Zechariah, you will realize that these prophets spoke in very different ways. Zechariah uses a lot of very strange word pictures, like a woman in a basket being flown over the earth. You're like, what's going on here? And you have to read and understand what does that mean? And in Zechariah, the angel will explain some of what's going on. But Zechariah is much more difficult to grasp at first reading, at least it is for me. Haggai is direct crystal clear, straight up the middle. There, there's, no, there's no wondering what Haggai is saying. And they both complement each other's ministries, right? They're not identical, but they, they both complement uh, each other's ministries. But Haggai said, listen, you guys are using an excuse to prevent doing what God has asked you to do. You have a sin in the middle of your life, which is refusing to rebuild God's house. And instead, you're preoccupied with your own comfort, your own paneled houses, your own uh, things that you're about, and you're excusing a basic act of obedience that's at the center of the city, in the center of your lives, and you're refusing to touch this. You're refusing to do anything about it. Remember what Haggai said? It's like being ritually impure. Everything you touch when there's unrepentant sin in the center of your life, everything you're doing is going to be defiled until what? until that sin is repented of, until that is dealt with in the center of the camp, until the temple begins to be rebuilt, all the worship is just a show. But if we deal with the sin that's in the middle of our life, then the Lord turns and forgives and is gracious. And so that's what happens. The people hear Zechariah and Haggai preach. And I'll just say, Zechariah, the second half of his letter has some really encouraging things to say to God's people. You know what he says? He says, uh, your king is coming, Israel. Remember, there's no Davidic king right now. The Persians are in control. There's no king. Zerubbabel's not king. He's governor, but he's not reigning as a king. He has no independent authority. He's under Persia. They're still slaves of Persians, really. Where's the Davidic dynasty? And Zechariah says, it's coming. Your king is coming to you, Jerusalem, humble, on a donkey. He's coming into the city. It's coming. Don't give up. Your king is going to come, but not on a war horse. He's going to come humbly. He's going to become, he's going to come to you. And then what does it say in Zechariah? It's amazing. I mean, we just heard the gospel from Scott, but just think about this in light of what Scott was saying. In Zechariah, at this time, what did the people hear? God, Yahweh says, you will look on me, whom you have pierced, just stop mid-sentence. You can't pierce God. That's nonsense. How can you pierce God? But God says, listen, the day is coming when you, Israel, you, my people, you're going to look on me whom you have pierced and mourn and weep as if you lost your only son. And then he says, on that day, the day when Yahweh is pierced, how can that happen? Well, on the day when Yahweh is pierced, this is what Zechariah says, a fountain is going to be opened in Jerusalem. And that fountain is going to wash away all sin in a day. And that's where we get the hymn. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The guilty thief, though, you know, the, 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 the thief, though I as vile as he, uh, I butchered that terribly. That is awful. Um, how does it go? Uh, the... The dying thief uh, rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, but there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. Zechariah predicted that 
500 plus years before the birth of Jesus. So the people are hearing these prophecies and they're going, how can God be pierced? How can the day of God being pierced open a fountain that's gonna cleanse us from our sins? We don't understand, but this is massively encouraging for our work. We can't fully figure out how that could be true and little could they know that one day the Davidic king coming on a donkey would be God in a body, God in human flesh. The Davidic king would be Yahweh made flesh. They they would not have conceived of such a thing, that the Davidic king would be God made man, and that he would be pierced with 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 Roman spikes and a spear through his side, all because Israel cried out for his death. And what happens? On that day, did a fountain open up? What did John say? Blood and water poured out, and it came true. God is going to cleanse his people from their sins. And so the people hear this distant future promise. The day is coming where I am going to save you from your sins. I'm going to wash you clean. So don't give up now. And don't despise the day of small things now. It's been convicting, you know, studying these books. These are some of the most overlooked books in the Bible. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they just don't get a lot of our attention. They don't get a lot of my attention. But here's what encourages me about this time the post-exile period, you know what encourages me? God is no less at work in this often forgotten time of Israel's history than he is at any other point in his history. God is present and his glory is at stake at every moment of human history. God's glory was at stake when they refused to rebuild. And God's glory was honored when they began to rebuild. And listen, In our lives right now, we may not feel like we're at some cataclysmic point in human history. We may not feel like we're at some amazing pinnacle, but God's glory is no less at stake in your life tonight. This week, your attitude is no less going to honor or dishonor God tonight than it would at any moment in your life. God's glory is really at stake in how we live. And let us pray for grace and forgiveness when we fail. Let's race to the cross when we mess up, which we're going to. But at the end of the day, let that not be an excuse. Let's get up and let's walk after Christ. Let's follow hard after Christ. And the people obey. They begin to rebuild all over again after 16 years of fear and indifference. And you know what happens? I mean, it's just like clockwork. They just start to rebuild. Verse 2, look at verse 3. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheshthar Bozanim and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. I'm gonna continue here for a moment. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Sheshthar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. This is the Persian king that the Persian leaders are writing to. Verse 7, they sent him, the king, a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. Now stop there. 
Do you feel the potential threatening element? I mean, do you see this? Persian leaders, as soon as rebuilding starts after 16 years, what happens? The Persian bureaucracy shows up. <laughs> they show up. They say, hey, excuse me, um, <clears throat> who gave you the authority to do this? You guys are under us, okay? You should not be building right now. We've got our notepad out, and we're going to take down the names. Aren't you scared when, 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 the, when the bureaucracy wants the names? We want the names, okay? We want the names of all the leaders of your people who are leading this because you guys are about to be in some serious trouble. That's reading between the lines, but I think that's pretty clear. And the people, this, this is what we find out. This is just true. It's always true. It's almost always true. When we seek to honor God with our lives, guess what we are going to find immediately, relentlessly, all the time? Are we going to get pushback? Are we going to get opposition? You know, sometimes it might even be a well-meaning relative who says, I get 18-year-old that you're really excited about Jesus, but you know, come on, there's other things to life than just church and the Jesus stuff, right? Come on, don't get so fanatical about Jesus. Come on, there's, there's other things to do. Don't, don't be so focused on Jesus. It might be more direct hostility. It might be that you're in class this semester and most around you are not Bible-believing Christians and there's an opportunity to speak a word about Christ in class and you, you want to say it as graciously as you can. You want to say it humbly but you raise your hand and you make that comment in class and suddenly you can just feel like there's a target. You ever felt this? Just kind of over your back. It's like, uh-oh. Now I might start getting some criticism from others in class because now I'm identifying as a Bible-believing Christian. In the book of Acts, remember? Remember, uh, we all know the song, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. What does it mean that I got the children's song right, but I got the hymn wrong? I don't know what that means about me. Uh, the, the children's songs run pretty deeply, don't they? Uh, so the, the, Acts chapter 3. Remember the beggar who's been lame from birth, unable to walk from birth. There he is at the beautiful gate, probably the bronze gate at the temple. And everyone walks by and they might give alms essentially there to the poor. And, uh, Peter, and John, uh, Peter and John walk up to him and what do they say? They say, they look intently at him. He looks at them expecting to receive something from them. And he was about to receive something from them. I don't have any coins here. I don't have any silver or gold, but I do have something that I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. The man stood up. His ankles became whole and strong, and he started walking and leaping and praising God in the temple. And the people who've seen this guy for years, everyone knows this guy. You walk through that gate, we all see him. He's been there for perhaps decades. Everyone can identify him. What in the world has happened? What has happened to this man? And so a crowd gathers. Thousands gather in the temple, this huge temple precinct that's still there to this day, up, up, up on the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Thousands gather. And what happens? Peter just wastes no time. He turns it straight into a sermon. I got a crowd. They want to hear what we have to say. Okay, it was not our power and piety that made this man walk. It was the name of Jesus whom you guys crucified a couple months ago. And there he preaches this convicting message, and the authorities hear about it, and what happens? They immediately want to put Peter and John and the others in jail, and so they do. As soon as disobedience happens and the Lord begins to move, what happens? There's immediate opposition, this time from the religious uh, parties around them. Of course, the Lord lets them out of jail with an angel, and then they put them, they take, they arrest them again. The second time you arrest someone who's been let out of prison by an angel, I don't quite know how confident you are when you arrest them the second time. Like, hey guys, can y'all please come with us? And okay, I don't know what they do. Well, they, they, remember, they whipped them, they beat them, and they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
And I could go on and on. I've got more, many more examples written down here. Paul is converted, and he goes into Damascus, and he starts preaching. What happens? A party watches the gates to try to take his life. So he has to be let down out of a basket. Remember that? And he escapes the city. A little bit later, Paul goes to Jerusalem, a brand new Christian. Even the Christians are like, not so sure that he really is a Christian. This seems a little too, seems a little too suspicious. The guy killing Christians says he's one of us. Not so sure. But Barnabas... Son of encouragement says, bring him in. He's real. I spent time with him. He's real. So they bring Paul into, the, and they, he meets the disciples in Jerusalem. And he start, it says he started preaching boldly that Jesus was the son of God. And what happens? Those unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem tried to take Paul's life. He finds out about it. He has to escape back to his hometown of Tarsus for about a decade. So what happens? Every time we see over and over again, opposition comes with obedience. We should not be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming to try us, Peter said, as though something strange were happening, but we should rejoice to the degree that we are fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ, right? So that's what we are seeing here. So we should not be surprised by opposition. Here's what we need to know. When Peter says, don't be surprised, instead rejoice, that that also includes how we treat the people who are opposing us. We need to be loving and gracious and convictional and truthful in a way that combines those things that almost keeps people off balance, you know what I mean? People are used to either convictional people being jerks, right? Or people being really nice but having no conviction, no backbone. We want to be that strange combination of unbelievably sure of God's word. Not sure of ourselves, but sure of God, sure of his truth. We are sure of what he says. And at the same time, unbelievably gracious, surprisingly kind, surprisingly thoughtful. Uh, That that combination is what only the gospel can can really produce. But let me add one more thing. It's not in this text. It'll come in the next chapters, starting in chapter 7. But I will say, when obedience comes, opposition doesn't just come from outside of us. You You know where opposition comes from every time we obey? It comes from our fallen nature. Romans 7, uh, verse 21 Paul says, I find it to be a law. He means like gravity, like it just, it's just always there. I find it to be a law, a principle, that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. He's talking about his own evil. When you want to read your Bible, isn't there part of you that comes up with a lot of good reasons to do something more productive with your time? Am I the only one who experienced? Surely I'm not the only one who's had this experience. You say, okay, I've got 30 more minutes before bedtime or in the morning you got up. You got 30 minutes, maybe free. You're like, 30 minutes? I don't have five minutes. But maybe you find 30 minutes free and you go, man, I can make a really good reason to uh, veg out right now. And I can make, it's really hard for me to give the argument for giving that time to prayer. Isn't that true? So when we want to obey God, your number one opponent, it's not the world. It's you. Me, I'm my biggest threat to prayer. You are not a threat to my prayer. Satan may try and tempt in some ways with fiery darts. My number one problem with my prayer life is my flesh, my fallen nature. When I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand, tempting me to turn otherwise. So our number one enemy needs to be seen as our flesh, our indwelling sin. And listen, if you really believe that your number one opponent in life is your sinful nature, that is going to change the way you treat other people. It's going to change the way you explain the gospel. It's going to change the way you explain forgiveness. Because I know that without God's grace, I am gone. That's going to change the way that we act. So obedience often leads to opposition both within and without. Point number two. In government opposition, honor God, speak truthfully, and appeal to just laws. This is 5 verses 11 to 17. 
in government opposition, honor God, speak truthfully, and appeal to just laws. Look at this here. Let's look at verses 12 and 13, or I guess 11 to 13. Verse 11 of chapter 5, and this was their reply to us. We are the servants, these are the believers responding, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Now, now get this. This is the response the believers gave to the Persian pagan authorities. Number one, is it honoring to God? Yes, it's theological. They're talking to pagan leaders, right? And what do they say? Look at it. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. We're rebuilding his house. It was built by a great king, that's Solomon. But because our fathers angered this God, our God, he gave them in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you see what he's doing? They're giving a theological, God-honoring interpretation of the past to pagan Persian leaders. That's amazing. So when, when we are asked our view on things, say by non-Christians, you get interviewed by somebody, uh, they ask your opinion, we should speak in a way that is explicitly honoring to the God of Christianity. There should be no shame in saying, we honor the God of heaven and earth, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe he's the savior of sinners and on and on it goes. But number two, they speak truthfully. Look at verses 13. And by the way, verse 12, they don't ignore their past failure. God, listen, we didn't lose to Babylon because our God is weaker than the Babylonian gods. We were being judged by our God because we were not being faithful to our God. They honor God in what they say. But now, now point verse number 13. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to those to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels and go put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been uh, in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether the decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Okay. If you're getting lost in this section here, here's, here's what I'm getting at. These people are asked by the Persians... Why are you Jewish people rebuilding the temple? And their answer is truthful. They say, Cyrus, the king, he issued a decree. This is like, you know, uh, 20-ish years ago. He issued a decree that we should rebuild the temple, and we are doing exactly what the, that first king of Persia told us to do. Is that true? 100%. Remember chapter 1, Cyrus issued that decree. Now, here's why this is important. Are the Persians going to research their claim and see if they're telling the truth? You better believe it. They're going to go do some research. They're going to find some scrolls that say whether they're telling the truth. So listen, we should tell the truth no matter if anyone finds out about it or not, because God knows every word we say before we say it, right? So we, we speak the truth in the, in the sight of God no matter what. But listen, for our witness before unbelievers, we should be especially clear that we speak the truth. We not speak deceptively or manipulatively. We speak clear and truthful things because when the unbeliever goes to research what we say, they better get confirmation that we are speaking what is true, that we need to be known as the truth people. 
Christians should be known as those who are devoted to the truth. And they do test it, and they do find out that they were telling the truth. Now, one more point here. They rightly point out uh, a, a legal precedent and a just law. I spent time on this probably two years ago, so I'm not going to go into this in great detail. I'll just mention this briefly. Turn with me to Acts 22, just for a moment. Acts 22. I want to look at a quick story from Paul's life. When Paul went back to Jerusalem and he was arrested there in the temple, falsely accused and arrested, I should add. Remember, remember when the Roman centurion is about to whip Paul? Remember this scene? Look at Acts 22, starting in verse 23. Acts 22, so the Romans have arrested Paul and they've taken him into the barracks and they're about to beat him. Acts 22, verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune, excuse me, it wasn't centurion, it was tribune, tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, this would have been a brutal beating, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, is he talking about God's law in the Old Testament when he says, is it lawful? No, he's talking about what? Roman law. He says, is it lawful for you to, to whip a Roman citizen without a trial? And the answer is, no, it's not. What, what the Romans are doing is illegal under Roman law to Paul. So Paul calls it. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Here's the principle. If there is a just law in the nation in which we live, whether right now in America or whatever nation you are from or live in, if there is a just law that you can appeal to, it's not wrong to appeal to it. So for instance, if we say, I, I want to claim uh, freedom of religion as, as, as something in, in America today, if someone says, hey, you can't preach the Bible, I say, well, I want to claim freedom of religion. Freedom of religion isn't, I'm not quoting a Bible verse, I'm simply saying that's the American rule, and so I, it's not wrong to appeal to the Constitution and say, hey, what about freedom of religion, and then that, making that kind of argument in that direction. This is what John MacArthur did, and there's been a documentary coming out called, uh, I don't remember what it's called. The Essential Church. The Essential Church, which I haven't seen, but I want to see. But it's dealing with this whole issue. So it is not wrong to appeal to your own state's laws to back up what you're doing. Paul does it here, and the Jerusalem Jews do the same thing here. They say, hey, um, what we're doing is actually in obedience to Cyrus's decree. We're not breaking your laws. And they go research it, and they find out, you're right. We were about to stop you, but it was against our own laws. And so th that's a significant thing. We can turn back to Ezra, and we will move into our last point. This is point number three. This is chapter six, verses one through 12. Watch God, I love this, turn your enemies into servants of your good. Watch God turn your enemies into servants of of your good. And before I read it, let me just make very clear what I mean by your good. I don't mean your circumstances will turn out the way you want every time. That's not what I mean. What I mean is God is going to work what your enemies are doing 
against your enemies in such a way that it turns out for your eternal good in Christ. He's going to make everything work together to make you more like Jesus. So even your enemy's greatest attempt to harm you is going to be overruled by God to bring about your Christ-likeness. That's going to be true always in this age. Chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read this whole long section, so follow me here. Ezra 6, verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree. This is the current king of Persia. And search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives, where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record. They found this scroll. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost, now it gets even better right here. Listen to this. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Persia is going to finance this rebuilding project. Verse 5, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that's in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. That's what the document said. Now listen to what is going to happen. Verse 6, now therefore, this is King Darius speaking to the, his, his, uh, his servant Tatnai. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Sheshthar Bozanim, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, here's what the king says, what? Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Now, you could stop right there, and that's great, but it gets better. Look at verse 8. Moreover, Darius writes, the pagan king, he was totally pagan, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. So now, you guys, here's, you've got to help them out. You ready? Here we go. The cost is to be paid to these men in full, without delay, from the royal revenue and the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep or for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, I love this part, I probably shouldn't love this part, okay? A beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. <laughs> his house <coughs> shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Isn't that wonderful? The people of Israel had to be going, you're kidding me. Like, wait, let, I want to hear that letter one more time. Okay, you can keep rebuilding. That's pretty good. Number two, we're going to finance everything, including your animal sacrifice. Really? That's even better. I didn't expect that. Number three, if anyone tries to stop you, we're going to take a beam out of their house, put it up, and we're going to impale them on it and then turn their house into a dunghill. And the people are like, oh, okay, all right. I'm not sure what to say about that, but we'll go with that on them. Uh, so that's what Darius says. That's what Darius says. That's an amazing story, isn't it? God is sovereign over pagan kings' decisions. The heart of the king is like a river in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And when God wants to do amazing things, he uses pagan kings to do it in this story, right? That's an amazing thing. 
Now listen, if God was that sovereign over Darius to do this overruling of these circumstances and to reinforce the building project, because as we heard in verse 5, in chapter 5, the, the eye of their God was on the Jews. It was on them to, to bless them. If that's true, how much more true can we believe that to be on this side of the cross of Christ? I mean, think about this. Give, give one more Old Testament story. Moses is preserved by the parents against the law. He should be thrown into the river Nile. A few months old, they're scared he's going to give himself away by crying. The mother, I think Jochebed is her name, takes the little basket, puts Moses in it, covers the basket, puts it there at the riverbank near the reeds. Miriam, the sister, older sister of Moses, is watching the basket. Pharaoh's daughter's out there, hears the crying. Her servants get the basket. They open it up. Must be one of the Hebrew babies. I remember, Moses' mother is terrified, no doubt, right down the way, right? Terrified. Her child is probably going to be killed right now. It's Pharaoh's daughter. Her dad said, kill all the Hebrew children in the Nile. This Pharaoh's daughter sees it. She feels compassion. She says, you know what? Suddenly Miriam shows up. What a great sister. She shows up, says, hey, uh, is that one of the Hebrew children? Yes, it is. Um, you know what? Maybe I can help you out, uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Why, why don't, listen, there, there's, I know a lady, a Hebrew lady. She, 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 could, she, could, she could take care, she could nurse the child. She could, she could help raise the child. At first. Could, I, could I find a Hebrew woman? <clears throat> My mom. Uh, could I do that? And she says, yeah, why, why don't you go find, find you know, I got something better. Why don't you find that Hebrew woman? And if you find it, I will pay her to, to raise this son. And so Jochebed, the mother who was about to lose her son, finds that God overruled her enemies in such a way that suddenly she gets her baby back, she gets to nurse her child, and now Pharaoh's daughter's financing her for doing it. She's getting paid part-time to raise the son that Pharaoh was trying to kill. What is happening? That's an amazing thing there. And so this, this is what we see God doing. He can overrule what the enemies do and turn it back on a blessing to our people. But again, a New Testament example would be the famous one, you know it. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, to keep me from becoming proud, conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn, listen, a thorn was given me in the flesh. By the way, no one, no one wants a thorn in their life, right? A thorn in the flesh. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to, her, to keep me from becoming conceited. I pleaded with the Lord three times to remove it, he said, no, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. Here's, here's what you see. Even when Satan sends a demonic spirit to be a thorn in Paul's side, whatever that was, I don't know, Satan sent a demon, or he was sent, to harass Paul and to harm Paul. And what does God do? God has a plan that has that happening. And what does God do? God says, my plan for this demon. You're like, wait, God has a plan for the demon? Yes. Tormenting Paul? Yes. What is God's plan? Satan's plan is to harm Paul. God plans for that demon to do the same exact thing. And what does God do? I'm going to use this humbling experience of this thorn in the side to make Paul less proud and more humble and more dependent on my strength so that my sufficiency will be seen in Paul's weakness. And Paul can glory in my power as he is made weak. So even when Satan is directly attacking God's people, which he does, demons are real. We heard that last week. Demons really do assault God's people. They, they send darts thoughts into our minds they can they can try to tempt us even when that's happening god is overruling all of that all that our enemies do or it's being overruled for our spiritual good in christ jesus i mean you can't have a better life than the life of a christian because when everything's going well it's all working to make you like jesus 
And when everything's going terribly in your life, it's all working to make you like Jesus. So that when you're having a good day, you rejoice in the goodness and mercy of Christ. And when you are having the hardest day of your life, you know that God has not forgotten you and that he has a purpose for your good in this trial. So that when days are good, you rejoice. When days are hard, you might even rejoice more because you know that he only sends necessary trials. And that the necessary trials, even when they come from enemies, are being planned by God for our good in Christ. And I'll close with this. The strongest example of God using his enemies and their evil to overrule it for good is the death of Jesus. You don't get worse government action than Pilate that morning. You don't get worse action than the Sanhedrin that morning. You, you don't get worse action than the crowd saying, we'd rather have Barabbas set free, a murdering insurrectionist, than to have the spotless son of God uh, set free. You don't get worse than this. Does God have a plan in the midst of all that? Yes, even at sin's worst, God is working his best. And when Christ is crucified, the worst thing that ever happened, the book of Acts can say he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God is working a day that was the worst day in human history, and we're going to call it for all of eternity, what? Good Friday. Because in the midst of God's enemies doing their worst, God is doing his best, and God will overrule all the actions of his enemies, ultimately to make us more and more like Christ, day in and day out. So we have great reason for confidence. Let's bow our heads together. God, in your word in 1 Peter, it says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us. We, we, we need real help to value Christ-likeness more than our comfort. Th these promises will not comfort us if we idolize comfort more than being like Jesus. But if we want to be like Jesus more than anything else, then no matter what comes our way, that goal is being accomplished by you in your divine sovereignty. So God, I pray that we would love Christ and that we would desire, long to be like him and that that confidence and that desire would ground us so that when all around our soul gives way, you are our hope and stay. God, help us to be grounded in Christ, unshakable, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.